0: Your horn. Lower your horn, Lacey. Help a brother out there. I can't believe I just said that. I'm like white Jew from Long Island. I'm like, help a brother out there. Well, when that brother is sole brother number one and uh, all those other appellations are fixed to James Brown, I guess they all fit and anyone can say them. I think, I know, I sometimes I wonder. If the greatest contribution that James Brown has made to music in American popular culture isn't even the invention of funky soul and funk and and what he does and just playing off the beat and stripping the music down to its essentials. I, I sometimes also wonder if his greatest contribution is just coming up with these titles and phrases that have absolutely no logic whatsoever And yet, from him, they worked. I mean, uh, everybody thinks of the Beatles as doing all this surreal kind of imagery. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, Plasticine Porters, and then Bob Dylan with with, um, songs like Mr. Tambourine Man and Chimes of Freedom, where it's all bizarre imagery that, that makes logical sense only to them and only when they're on drugs and then a certain intuitive and emotional sense to the rest of us. But it took a James Brown to come up with something called Mother Popcorn. But Mother Popcorn, what? What? It makes, you know, I guess you could say that Orville Redenbacher was Daddy Popcorn, or Grandpa Popcorn. (laughs) Grand Popcorn. And now he's got the son doing the commercials, so he's uh, son Popcorn. But where does that come from, something like that? I wish I I had some of uh, his other weird song titles coming out here. I mean, Sex Machine, obviously... I mean, kind of a risque title for when he was doing that song, Sex Machine. But okay, that makes some sense. If you're lucky enough to have the energy and the coordination and the physical aptitude to be a sexual kind of machine, get the job done in a mechanistic, vibratorial fashion... Well, then, good for you. But, Mother Popcorn, where does something like that come from? We'll also talk a little bit about uh, the late Charlton Heston and your thoughts about him. I mean, my real only connection at all to Charlton Heston was the fact that it was part of the holiday Jewish tradition on Passover, was that, yes, he did the Seder, And I I come from an Orthodox family. So you you did the Seder stuff and you had the family over and you did all the dishes and you did the Haggadah. But on the TV, in the den, whenever it was happening, invariably they put, what else? The Ten Commandments. That was ABC Television's way of celebrating Passover. And in some ways, especially when I was growing up and we were a little more religious, it seemed like the dumbest thing ever. Because here you are, You've got all these Jews around, and and we're talking from the Orthodox to the the conservative and even Reformed community, well, maybe not so much the Reformed community, but all celebrating. We're busy, okay? We are busy at the table. The, The women are busy, not to be sexist about this, but they're busy cooking and setting the table, and the fathers are busy, well, drinking and hiding the Ophie Coleman, and talking, and arguing, and doing stuff, and, and, you know, it's a family event. Not everybody's going to be hunkered down watching a a three-and-a-half-hour Cecil B. DeVille movie. And yet, here it was, ABC would would set aside two nights, part one and part two, because of all the commercials, to show the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston as Moses. And, you know, I, I kind of resented it. I was like, how dumb is that? That they're doing on the Seder night when you're really not supposed to be watching television. It's a kind of a holding night. The Orthodox certainly aren't going to be doing it. And I'm not just talking about that sect of the Jewish Orthodox who don't look at movies at all and, and aren't allowed to hold Natalie Portman's hand. Poor guys. No, I'm, I'm talking about basic Jews who are kind of busy the first and second nights of Passover in America. And yet, that's when... ABC TV would choose to put on the Ten Commandments. And yet, somehow, even though we were all busy, we kind of knew the Ten Commandments were on. And because it's a kind of a half-boring film, it always worked out, and I think maybe there were some Jews at WABC who knew this, that if they timed it just right, you, you'd have the first part of the Seder, and you get through all the, the, those things, and then you get to the meal and everybody eats, and you get sort of in between the meal and while dessert was being prepared, you would go into, back into where the TV was. And lo and behold, that was the point when the good stuff was happening. One night, it would be the plagues, you know, and then for the next sager, it would be crossing the Red Sea. So you, you wouldn't have to wade through all the boring stuff, and you'll bring it back. Oh, cannot go! Send them back! You know, and, and all these things, and then some of the ridiculous makeup in Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, I mean, we all saw that at least once, but I don't know if any Jew has seen the Ten Commandments all the way through more than once. What we've seen is the good parts. and And happily, thankfully to ABC, the good part always tended to be in that in-between time, when we're having a meal and dessert, and you go in, and it's like, oh, they're crossing the Red Sea! Everybody come in! Especially when you find a guy on colored television, and it was really kind of cool. So you go in, and you watch them cross the Red Sea, and it took about five minutes, and then we go back in and finish off the Seder, which is, the you know, second half of the Seder is 20 minutes long. It's nothing. So, um, and now that there's so many different TV channels, and everything's changed, I don't even know, I think now they put the Ten Commandments on the week before Passover or, or maybe two weeks I think I saw it on TV already. And it's more wise and I guess they took my advice some point down the line and realized it was kind of a silly to put it on opposite the Seder. And then I kinda of miss it on Seder night. Now I feel like it should be part of the Seder in a in an Americanized multi not multicultural but a melting potty <laughs> melting potty there's uh there's a new phraseology that that uh, we'll get some heads talking I and mean, the melting potty kind of a way that American diaspora Jews would celebrate the holiday so i i, I I'm not going to start a campaign to bring the Ten Commandments back on Seder night because it's still kind of silly but I don't know maybe I could just do a highlight reel uh, you know, ten o'clock right or or nine forty five so people can get home relatively early. 9.45, crossing the Red Sea, 9.55, we're back at the table finishing the Seder. And then, I know, I think that could work. Anyway, how did I... Oh, because Troughton Heston. And I was hoping people might call in at 631-888-8811. Area code 631-888 eight eight one one is the number at the uh, the radio station for a couple more minutes if you want to give your Charlton Heston memories. I still have never seen the full Planet of the Apes film. I know it's a classic. I just I was so not into sci fi growing up that I, I kind of avoided that whole genre and didn't pay attention and, and thought it rather stupid. And I'm sure it's a very good movie. And everybody knows the last couple of minutes of the first Planet of the Apes Film and uh, hasting on the beach with with this giant statue of Liberty head. You fools! Great moment. Uh, You don't have to see the film to know that it's a brilliant, great moment. And so he's given us, you know, Charlton has given us some good um, filmic moments. So I'll miss him for that. And if he ended up becoming something of a stooge for the National Rifle Association and was played that way for Michael Moore's amusement. In that film, Bowling for Columbine, you know, for good and for bad. I mean, it wasn't necessarily fair to him, but also there are things about the NRA that um, might might take some, some second thoughts to. Well, he, you know, he was an old man, and he made his uh, his contribution. And let's face it, when we think of Moses, what do we think of? We think of first that statue with, um, I think it's Michelangelo could be wrong about that, but but this big marble statue with a beard, and unfortunately, uh, dreadfully, those stupid horns on his head, which were supposed to be like beams of light, but of course gave all the, um, the anti-Semites and, and the uh, non-Jews cause to think, oh, Jews have horns, it's, 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 it's horns on their heads, they're devilish. No, it was just a stupid sculpture, it was just extra clay. <laughs> Maybe um, I guess it was Michelangelo. who was making Moses. He was like, I, you know, I've got these two little things, and if I chip them off, I might break the whole head, and it'll cost me weeks worth of work again. Let me, let me leave them on. Um, <laughs> Maybe he was thinking, I'll leave them on, and then I'll, I'll make him a hat. And then he ran out of time, and, and they said, you know, no, I, he doesn't have his hat on yet because he's Jewish. He has a yarmulke, and the people that he was sculpting it for were like maybe they were the Mega Cheese or something, said, no, 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 it's fine the way it is. We, we need them for our gallery opening. And Michelangelo says, no, he's got, look at those things. We'll put, I need, let me at least make a tiny little yarmulke for them. Two little yarmulkes, one for each horn. And they're like, no, 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 we need it now. And, and it's come down through the ages like that. Oh, well, <laughs> some things you can't control in life and art. But anyway, speaking of life and art, and things of that nature. Let me tell you what's going to be on Dave's Gone By tonight at 11, just a few minutes away. Well, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a musical edition, and a plagiaristically mus- musical edition of Dave's Gone By tonight, because my guest is Timothy English, or will be Timothy English, who has uh, written a book, kind of a surprised somebody hasn't done this before, about rock and roll plagiarism, be it really direct and overt, Or sort of covert. I mean, rock and roll by nature is something that plucks things from all different sources. From the blues, from the English musical, from minstrelry, from occasionally even classical themes. I mean, that's what it does. Rock and roll just feeds off everything and then transforms it and converts it. And sometimes, if you're a Bob Dylan, it takes takes a phrase here and there, or even a whole melodic line, but does make it recognizably something else. And then other times, well, the source and then the outcome, or the new output, are a little too close for comfort. Now, the most famous example of that, and the one that really made the papers and put it out there, was She's So Fine and the George Harrison song, My Sweet Lord. And it's a really cool story behind that. Tim English is going to get into it, because not only did George Harrison fight and lose the idea that he copied the song, He's So Fine, without giving credit when he was doing My Sweet Lord, but his defense wasn't just that, oh, he never heard the song and he wasn't copying it, his defense was that he was copying another song! Find out which song tonight on Dave's Gone By from Timothy English, and he is the author of, do I have the name of the book, Sounds Like Teen Spirit, Stolen Melodies Ripped Off Riffs. Sounds like teen spirit It's going to be a fun conversation And yes we're going to play quite a few samples Of songs that sound like other songs Some you'll be pretty familiar with And some you'll be like Oh wow That's what I love about radio You get those oh wow moments So hopefully you'll be saying Oh wow a few times uh, When listening to Dave's Gone By tonight Well hello Aru. This is Peter Fitzgerald Guess what time it is That's right, it's time for Dave's Gone By, a gay old time on AM 1240 WGBB Freeport, and AM 1240 WGBB.com for live audio uh, streaming. Greetings from Long Island, where every highway is a sunrise. It's time for Dave's Gone By, an hour of comedy, talk, and music brought to you by Total Theater with your host, Dave Lefkowitz. You've never heard anything like it, so sit back, relax, squeal if you must. Here's the host of Dave's Gone By, Dave! Tropical hot dog night! I shoot mango a
1: fruit fight!
0: Well, there goes the DAMERHOOD! Welcome, 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 everyone, on this first Sunday night in April 2008. It's April 6th, and time for the 267th episode of Dave's Gone By. So happy to have you here. And uh, I'm Dave Lefkowitz, radio personality, uh, theater critic, journalist, and general raconteur. Are, are there raconteurs anymore? I don't know. Well, uh, I guess when Pamela Anderson plays... Ber- oh, anyway. This program is brought to you by a bunch of cool people. It's, it's a little odd here, because I'm so used to having a guest co-host over the past few weeks. I've had... um Usually it's Jeff Goodman, but Jeff is in Las Vegas. So I'll with him. I hope he's getting lucky in... Well, however many ways that can mean. And he will be back certainly next week. And also a uh, shout-out to Joe Salzone, who was my guest co-host last week. And he's busy over with uh, the satellite people. So good wishes to all of them. And it's been a while since I've done this by myself. So it's a little, uh, little, you know, little odd, little weird feeling. When there's silence, there's nobody to pick it up. If I lose my train of thought in the middle of something... Uh, it just sort of sits there and hangs there. So you'll have to bear with me. This is, the, this is kind of going back to some old ways of doing things. But I'm not completely alone on this episode of Dave's Gone By. In fact, in a few minutes, I have a very special guest, an author and someone who's as into music, certainly, I guess, as I am. And that's always a kind of a good thing. Into rock and roll music. And he concentrated on one particular aspect of it. And the fact that even though rock and roll is by nature a form of music that cannibalizes other things, it cannibalizes poetry, it cannibalizes all these other different kinds of music, everything from Broadway show tunes to rhythm and blues to gospel, certainly, to country music, hillbilly music, rockabilly um, which I guess was kind of later on, but but I mean, you name it, it's, it's even taken classical music. Uh, just last week, I went to Town Hall and heard a group called the East Village Opera Company, and what they do is they take famous operatic arias and do them in a very kind of bombastic uh, prog rock sort of way. And a little of it goes a long way for me, but it, they do it pretty well, and it's kind of exciting. I mean, you know all the musical themes, and then hearing them done with a heavy backbeat and real serious guitar work, is like, oh, okay, interesting, interesting, it can be done. But sometimes rock gets a little too close to the source, or it even starts eating its own self. The most famous example of that has to do with George Harrison, where, um, that's, that's the one that really made the papers and became a big cause celeb of one song being just a little too much like another song. I'm sure that happened at the Brill building all the time when people were back writing songs by the hour or, you know, they punched a check five days a week, um, or cashed a check five days a week and punched their time cards and went into people like Don Kirshner or, um, to, or with Neil Sedaka. Went to Phil Spector and said, Here it is, here's my song, and it sounded like something that someone played down the hall three days ago, and by osmosis, they didn't even realize they were doing it, but they were stealing because it was just in the air. Well, some, there's sometimes osmosis and sometimes stealing. And as I said, the most famous example had to do with George Harrison's My Sweet Lord, which sounded a little too much like the chiffon's He's So Fine. And so, um, I think also the killer was it wasn't just like the verse, but the chorus sounded the same. We'll we'll play them uh, later as as examples, but I'm sure you know both songs and you know how close they are and how much of a field day the media had when that trial was going on and everybody looking at George Harrison going, how could you not realize? How could you have not known the song? He's so fine. And, I mean, how could it not? And his defense, and this is the funniest part of it, and this is what we'll be talking with Timothy English about, uh, regarding his book, Sounds Like Teen Spirit, we'll, he mentions, and then he says, the defense that George Harrison used was not that he was copying He's So Flying, or, or that it came to him by his own mind thing, but in fact, he was really copying another song. So, can I, what song was it? You're going to have to stay tuned to find out for the rest of this episode of Dave's Gone By. We're going to be talking with Timothy English, who is the author, or Tim English, author of Sounds Like Teen Spirit, Stolen Melodies, Ripped Off Riffs. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we're going to be playing clips. Some you'll be familiar with, and some you're gonna, your jaw's going to drop, and you're going to be like, oh my God, I sure hope somebody sued, somebody got paid royalties, somebody made a deal, etc., and so forth. So, anyway, that is going to be tonight on Dave's Gone By. Timothy English, my special guest. But that is not the only thing we're doing on the show. Oh, no. We're going to make room for Broadway news and reviews, hopefully. We haven't got time for them in the past few weeks, because we've got so much else to do. But hopefully this week we'll get to Inside Broadway with all the stuff that's going on on the Rialto. I mean, it's really, it's heating up now. It's early April, and everything's opening, and this is a real flurry of Broadway activity right now for the next couple of weeks. So definitely check out Inside Broadway later in the show. I'll be reviewing The Homecoming, The uh, Harold Pinter revival on Broadway that has one more week to run before it closes. I've been mean to review that production on this show since it opened. And knock wood, I will finally get to it uh, seven days before it closes. Oh well. And if there's time, I'll also talk about the recent, well, the brand new revivals of two incredibly important, major, wonderful shows, Gypsy and South Pacific. So, all of that tonight on Dave's Gone By. All that remains is to thank our sponsors, Hewlett Minuteman Press, 1315 Broadway in Hewlett, 516-569-5577 is the phone number, 516-569-5577 for Hewlett Minuteman Press, 10% off for Dave's Gone By listeners on any job, big or small. Fancy schmancy balloons, that's Jeff's company, that's the company that you go to if you are having a party, And you want it to look really good. Because Jeff does these marvelous balloon archways and great balloon designs. And he also does these incredibly clever and fun centerpieces for your tables. And it's not expensive at all. So give Jeff a call when he's back in town. A couple of days. 516-797-3229. 516-797-3229. This program is also brought to you by MortgagesRock.com. They are premier mortgage brokers. Why? Because not only can you get a mortgage from them or financing to redo your home or for college loans, something like that, but you can learn how to be a mortgage broker and get the commission and all good stuff like that. Now, I know the economy is where it is and the big subprime problem and all of that. We're going to cycle out of that. We may be going into a recession, that's true, but at some point, people still need to buy houses and houses are still going to be on the market, and they'll be lower than they were, but they're still doing pretty well. Uh, if, if, if housing prices shot up 150% over the past 10 years, and then they go down 10% in the next, you know, over the last few weeks and a couple of weeks ahead, well, that's still pretty good. So mortgagesrock.com is the place to find out about how you can be a broker or get financing that you will need. All the information is on the website, mortgagesrock.com. Also brought to you by Performing Arts Insider Theater Magazine, the Bible of Broadway. They're the folks who bring us inside Broadway every week. And really, really great special going on For Dave's Gone By listeners, 12 issues, the monthly version of the hard copy magazine, 12 issues for only $115. That's less than $10 an issue. And remember, on the newsstands, this magazine sells for $14. So it's a nice savings only for Dave's Gone By listeners. Go to davesgoneby.org to find out more about Performing Arts Insider. And... Da-dum, let, me, let me think of something. Da da dum dum da 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 dum dum. We have a brand new sponsor, ladies and gentlemen. Neva. Neva. N-E-V A. They're located at twelve thirty nine Broadway in Hewlett. Twelve thirty nine Broadway. Only a block or two away from Hewlett Minute Man Press, actually. And they are specialists in Eastern European groceries. It's a place to get um, all kinds of things from desserts to smoked fish to special kinds of yogurt. And it's all coming from Russia and also places like Croatia and Israel. They have sunflower seeds, uh, different kinds of cheeses, an amazing array of sausages. It's this really neat store. and You really can't find anything like it except if you go to Brighton Beach. So Neva proud to be brand new sponsors of Dave's Gone By. So make them happy. Go patronize them. Go visit them. You'll hear more about them later in the show. But thank you to Neva for helping sponsor Dave's Gone By. And finally, on the sponsor list, Shalom, dammit, Rabbi Sal Solomon's Peace, Love, and Acid Reflux Hour. Now airing twice a week, Wednesdays and Friday mornings at 7.30 on Channel 115. Used to be on a different channel. It's moved to Channel 115, but it's the same time. Wednesday and Friday, 7.30 in the morning. Check it out. Also, if you're hearing this show and you live in New York City, Shalom Dammit airs on Channel 67 on Manhattan Neighborhood Network. Sunday afternoons at 1.30. And also you can go to MNN.org and watch it streaming there, Sundays at 1.30. And finally, you can hear Shalom Dammit on YouTube, or see Shalom Dammit on YouTube.com anytime at all. So check that out, the Rabbi's Show, Shalom Dammit. Whew! Okay, it's 11, 12 p.m. already, and I've barely gotten started. Let's do some advertising, and then we're going to play Can You Name That Tune Twice with Tim English Don't go away. If you like the laughs I bring you every week on Dave's Gone By, I'll bet you'll like my book a whole lot too. It's called Marriage, Babies, and the End of the World, full of short and funny plays about everything from blind dates to dead people to a bowl of prunes. Marriage, Babies, and the End of the World, available from Holvo Books on my website, davesgoneby.org. Makes a great gift, and the laughs are on me. Print it, copy it, send it as a gift. All that and more at Hewlett Minuteman Press. Your full-service printer. Family owned and operated since 1975. Photocopying, printing, wedding invitations, and great gifts... Minuteman, 1315 Broadway in Hewlett. Call 516-569-5577, 569-5577, on the web at hewlett.minutemanpress.com, and mention Dave's Gone By to get 10% off.
1: Was a light diesel with a powerful motor and some highway wings. Pushing off the button, you would get up to Now you can't get me, baby. You Flat top, he was move it up with me Then come waving goodbye And a little old souped up jitty I put my, put in my tank And I began to roll Moaning siren towards the day for
0: Sometimes songs come together in ways that are unexpected. Songs that come together because basically one artist learned from another, was influenced by another, stole from another. Hmm. That sometimes uh, that's a line. It's a line that uh, has to be decided who crossed what. Well. I'm not necessarily an expert on that, but I do have someone who is on the telephone with us in the neighborhood. He's a fellow who wrote a book called Sounds Like Teen Spirit, about stolen stolen melodies ripped off riffs. A fellow named Tim English, and uh, Tim, you there with us? Good evening, Dave. How are you? Oh, good. Good to hear from you. I'm great, and, and thanks so much for being with us in the neighborhood. And thanks for writing this book about something that we've all thought about and talked about, but it's great that someone codified this and got together these lists of songs where you put the two of them together and you go, Whoa! W- you know, was this intentional? And was it an homage, or was it something more? Well, what gave you the idea to do it?
2: Well, it's an idea that uh, I would had for, uh, I guess, probably over 20 years, uh, back when I was back in college, and I always thought it would be a neat idea. Whenever I talked to my friends about uh, music, uh, you know, I thought it was a topic that people were really interested in, if people were really into rock and roll and music in general, and nobody else had ever done it. And I had sort of uh, done a little writing on music in my uh, high school and college days, and uh, So I started putting the book together over really many years, and during that time I'd pop into the Barnes & Noble and see if anybody else had come up with the idea. Uh (laughs) And if they had, I would have uh, just uh, thrown in the towel, but nobody ever did, so there it is.
0: Now, how often when when you come up, and and one of the things that you did was, when you go on these radio shows to push the book, you would put together this whole list and these CDs of these things, and there's about a hundred Examples which means like fifty songs that are either the the sources and then fifty other songs that are outgrowths, let's say how many do you would you say are out and out theft, and how many would you say are just more like well yes the the artist is obviously acknowledging a previous song, but he isn't really stealing it, he's just winking and using it, which i I think what the Beatles did with the Chuck Berry number.
2: Well, the, Ch- the Chuck Berry number is an uh, interesting case. To answer your question in general, I think a lot of this is just uh, influence. of Who influenced Sue? Uh, I can only, in the book, I can only say that this song sounds like another one, and then I try to provide the background on it as to uh, whether uh, the person that was influenced by, you know, say, Song B and Song A, whether the guy did Song B, could have heard it, what was the background, what were the connections, that that type of thing. I can't claim to be inside of anybody's head to see this is their intention, that they said, I'm just going to steal this. Mm. Or it was, uh, you know, in the case of George Harrison, my sweet lord, the judge ruled it was a subconscious plagiarism. But that doesn't get you off the hook for it either. In the case of um, uh, the one we just heard, you can't catch me and come together. Uh-huh. John kind of left himself open for that in a way because he gave an interview, I believe it was to Rolling Stone, and he said that he had uh, one of the ways that he would write his songs would be sort of like jamming on one song and singing it and sort of playing the groove of that and then trying to come up with his own song. And he admitted that he had done that with the Chuck Berry song uh, You Can't Catch Me and uh, in composing Come Together. And, of course, he carried over some of the lyrics, too, like about the flat top and so forth. And the song does have some uh, melodic and rhythmic similarities, but they're still, to me, they and John would have said that they're still very different.
0: They're very different, parts. but but then again, it's a Lennon and McCartney song. It's not a Lennon and McCartney Berry number.
2: That's right. But he did apparently uh, come to an agreement uh, in settling the case, where he agreed that he would record three of the songs of um, I think it was called Big Seven Berry's publisher. A lot of this is not the actual artist. It's just the publishers and the lawyers. Oh, sure. Of these things. That was the case with the publishers of um, who brought suit against George Harrison. Uh, the publishers, if he's so fine, the actual writer of that song was long dead at that time. Oh. So it's just the publishing people you know, getting involved and um, you know, the lawyers getting involved and so forth.
0: Do you remember the... Um, were you around... I don't know how old you are. How old are you? I'm 46. So, yeah, you would remember... The when that was really in the papers, that was a big deal. People were oh, really sure. talking about it, and you know, how did you feel about it back then as a young man?
2: I thought that that's really the kind of first case of this that I remember, and I think it's probably still the most famous case. And I just thought it was intriguing to hear the two songs, and you sort of have an aha moment where you uh, you know hear the similarities for yourself. And I thought that they were quite similar.
0: How would you have voted if you were on the jury? Was there, um, was there a jury, or was it just a judge saying I think the
2: judge decided it. Uh, you know, some of these get in front of juries, and some of them get in front of the judge. But the judge basically said that the whole song had been plagiarized. Yes.
0: So <laughs> well, the melody really kind of, I mean, yeah, you know. It does. Yeah, I would have given something to the dead guy's family. Just something. Yeah,
2: well, the thing is, when doing the book, I tried to... I tried to explain the, you know, copyright infringement law just a little bit and keep it to a merciful minimum. The whole, this whole case, you could almost write half a book on it itself because it went on for years and years in the courts. There was sort of uh, George claimed that there was shenanigans going on behind the scenes with his manager at the time, Alan Klein,
1: uh-huh.
2: uh, sort of negotiating behind George's back. He claimed to purchase the rights. Uh, of bright music while this case was going on, so he was kind of playing two sides of at the same time. That sort of colored the case and kept it in the courts for many years. Uh, George actually ended up owning the publishing, too. Uh, he's so fine <laughs> uh, shortly before he died. Which, oh,
0: that's funny. Uh, yeah. So, in other words, he would have had the right to use it because he would have owned the song anyway. Yes. That's funny. I mean, well, I guess then, then, like, technically, when he owned the Beatles stuff, Michael Jackson could have, in some ways, plagiarized Beatles songs, and he would have been legally entitled to do so? Or, um,
2: hmm. I'm not that familiar with the, the Michael Jackson case of whether he owned the, um, you know, the different types of uh, of uh, publishing things. I think he, but, yeah, probably he would have had some, he did use some of the songs in,
0: Commercials, of of course, right?
2: Like Revolution, which people um, didn't really appreciate very much.
0: Although now so many, I mean, it's just such an epidemic with um, Bob Dylan, Shilling for everything, and Stone song cropping up everywhere, and David Bowie, his own brand. I mean that sounds a little, you know? strange
2: though. I mean, as a friend of mine said to me, he says, "Well, the Stones sold out years ago. Oh, yeah. Stones had Jovan. uh, I think it was their '82 tour. They had Jovan." uh whatever that was or
1: something yeah right <laughs> you
2: know, uh sponsoring the thing. So they were way ahead of the curve. Don't forget Mick Jagger went to London School of Economics. Hmm. He's no he's no dummy when it comes to these deals. And I think I think times have changed though because it's so hard for somebody like Mellencamp or Petty to get get their new music played these days that, you know, they put it in a in a you know truck commercial or whatever and, and why not or in a
0: sitcom or or a comedy drama on T V. That's a real great way. Now that yeah. people are doing it, just to, to have it backing some scene. Or to, you know, if you can end a CSI with a song, that song's going to sell, you know, whatever, however many tens of thousands of copies the next week. Yep. But the one thing that you didn't mention about um, the George Harrison case, and, and we'll get on to some other ones, but uh, the thing that struck me as most funny when I was talking to you earlier this week was his defense had to do with the fact that he wasn't just doing. He was not copying. He's so fine. Now he came up with a song. It was his song, and yet he kind of alluded to or admitted to copying another song.
2: Well, in his defense, uh, that was something that he had said. It really, one of the things in actually trying to defend the case that they said, though, was that Billy Preston had recorded the song "My Sweet Lord." Billy Preston was really involved in the uh, in the uh, genesis and the creation of the song, I believe. Well, so he doesn't have a writing credit on it, but he recorded the song early in 1970, and his recording of it uh, was produced by George, and it came out, I think, about six months before George's recording came oh. out, and it was not a hit. And in defending the case, George's lawyers said, "Hey, his version, George's version of My Sweet Ward was a hit because this guy was a member of the most successful and famous group in the world, and uh it was not those uh, three notes or the." the song, the melody of the Chiffon song that made it a hit was the fact that this guy uh, was an ex-Beatle and very uh, popular and I witnessed the fact that Billy Preston recorded a similar version and it was not a hit. So that that was one of the things they said in trying to defend it. But George also said later that he was actually trying to, that he actually had based the song on the Edward Hawkins singer's hit, Oh Happy Day.
0: And, and it's, uh, that really blew my mind. I mean, that wouldn't have struck me immediately the way he's so fine would. When you think about it, I don't have a, a, a copy of it here, but, oh, happy day, oh, happy day, oh, happy day. It is a call and response kind of a thing. Well, I yeah, mean, they can yeah. get
2: into that, though, at the end of the uh, song. And uh, an interesting thing, I believe I'm correct, that the Edwin Hawkins singers sang on the Billy Preston version of the song, My Sweet Lord" oh. that was produced. So I've, I've actually never heard that song. I'd sure I'd like to hear it, though. It's, it's I don't
0: really so. incestuous. I mean, well, I don't know, maybe commercial it's a commercial, I'll play it later. But it's a very catchy. I used to have that 45, and it's a pretty neat and, and catchy kind of a pop gospel number.
2: And just to wrap it up, if you saw the concert for George, it was recorded in uh, London's Royal Albert Hall in 2002, the memorial concert for George Harrison. Really, the showstopper was Billy Preston singing uh, My Sweet Lord. Uh, just a wonderful version of that, and of course he since passed away.
0: And the other thing I gotta remember from the trial, and I don't remember what the other song was, but in trying to prove that songs can be alike but completely different, um, he played something on the, I think it was George himself, who played something on the piano, and it was, it might have been Silent Night, he was playing the same notes, it was like the same 13 notes, and when he played the same 13 notes in order but, but at a different tempo, it was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Does that ring a bell? It was like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I could be confusing the two songs, but it was like another mind-blowing moment. I don't recall that, but
2: I do quote George in the book as saying that uh, I can't understand why there are not a million cases of uh, like this in the court. Why is it just this one? Uh, that there every song, you hear lots of songs on the radio that sound like something else.
0: Well, let, let's let's get to some more songs and, and some of them that you mentioned in your book. Sounds like Teen Spirit, which is by the way, who publishes it and where can people get it?
2: Oh, it was by iUniverse in a Star Edition. It's available in uh, just about all the bookstores, and uh, if you go to my website, soundsliketeenspirit.com, you have a link up there to Amazon. You can also purchase it on Barnes and Noble or any of the other Books a Million, any of the other websites.
0: Sounds like Teen Spirit by Tim English. And so let, let's get to another one. Here's, um, here's someone who generally does covers of songs. I would, that's what he is known for. Rod Stewart does song covers, and it says there's no plagiarism there. He has the rights, and he does his versions of songs that are more generally slick and poppy than original. So he'll cover a Tom Waits number, or he'll cover a Beagle's number, or a Van Morrison song. Okay. But every once in a blue moon, Olrod Rod has, I don't know, pushed the envelope a little bit. Um, one of the examples of that that you mentioned in the book is, uh, well, his very, very famous hit disco song, Do You Think I'm Sexy? And so we're going to hear a little bit of that. And then what are we going to hear? We're
2: going to hear a song called Taj Mahal by the Brazilian uh, artist uh, George Ben. If people do know him in this country, they know him as the author of Mosh Canada, which was a famous uh, sort of Bossa Nova song in the 60s. Uh, recorded by El Fitzgerald and mm-hmm. uh, Sergio Mendez. And uh, one of the things I might say before we hear this sure. is that in in writing this book, one of the great things about it for me was that I got turned on to a lot of new artists for the first time, including people like George Ben. who has been around for about 40, 45 years and really, really great stuff. Uh, if you're into, you know, uh, if, well, if you're not into it, you could get into it. Uh, mm-hmm. Brazilian, bossa nova type stuff and stuff. Uh, that was I hope that been reading the book, people will have likewise, get into some new music for the first time.
0: Well, here's um, some old music by Rod Stewart, and a little bit of even older music by George Ben. I think you will be able to hear the similarities.) George just hit the floor Ladies and gentlemen I mean that's just uh, You know Wow, how? how what is the, the time span Between those two songs Do you know uh, Tim?
2: Yeah that, that song was recorded in 72 And Do uh, so You Think I'm Sexy From 78
0: Wow uh, yeah. we're, we're coming around to that chorus again Nice song
1: Everybody now. Oh not
0: yet And to think Rod Stewart was getting Rachel Hunter by copying this.
1: <laughs>
0: now, was there ever kind of a, a court case about this, or is it just one of those things where, you know, George Ben was just happy Rock Stewart acknowledged his melody.
2: Uh, There's a little more to it than that. (laughs) Okay, what, what, what? uh, As you can see, this one is, there are certain examples in the book where I just wonder how there never was a court case, but this one there was. And uh, getting the details on some of these court cases, Dave, is a little murky um, because a lot of times they're sort of covered up or swept under the rug at some point. But in this case, he did initiate legal action, and it was moving, apparently, through the courts, as uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy was kind of riding high in the charts. It was the number one hit in this country and a lot of other countries. And uh, Rod Stewart uh, said, I'm going to donate my um, royalties, songwriting royalties from this song to UNICEF. And he did so at a um, televised concert in January 79 from the U.N. Yeah. And uh, I found an interview with George Benn from recently, I think about two or three years ago, and he said, he what did he think about this whole incident? And he said, uh, well, I'm very glad that the song is going to um, assist the uh, poor children of the world through UNICEF, but it would have been nice if I had a say in it before somebody had just given away my... Yeah.
0: loyalty
2: is rightfully due to me so uh, kind of mixed feelings there uh, How about,
0: uh, some of that money could have gone into the George Ben Fund Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the Feed the uh, Bossa Nova Singer Fund why not and yeah. it's not the only time that um, Rod Stewart has played a little bit fast and loose with his sources and with, with taking rather wholesale melodies from other places here's, a, here's another song that you um, thought of that you you came up with it's called The Death of Georgie. There's the Killing of Georgie, of I think it is. Oh, is it The Killing of Georgie? I'm sorry, yeah. you're right. I, I think you're right about that. It's, it's, the, the cool thing, it's another song where he's got this out because it's a really. It's a song about tolerance. It's about yeah. this kid who's gay, and he gets killed over it, and how sad that is, and why can't we all live together? So you want to be on, on Rod Stewart's side. Of this. Yeah, and
2: in fairness, and I do point out in the book, uh, you're exactly right. There weren't that many people even today, and this was, I think, 76, and it was sort of a, uh, you have to give Rod Stewart credit, uh, it was sort of a brave thing to uh, record uh, a song with that theme at that time.
0: So here's, here's the, the first part of the song, which. I guess this is pretty, you know. In these days of changing
1: ways, so-called liberated days, a story comes to mind of a friend of mine. George's boy was gay Gems, nothing more, nothing less. The kindest guy I ever knew. His mother's tears fell in vain. The Afternoon, Josh tried to explain that he needed love like all the rest. said there must be a mistake. How can my son not be straight after all I've said and done for him?
0: Now, an argument can be made here that this doo 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 could come from Walk on the Wild Side. Where you yeah, know, know I go there. <laughs> No, Wait, what were we going to say?
2: Yeah, I, I uh, was just going to say that. I hadn't really realized that, but it does sort of sound walk and rise outside. Of course, we're, we're, I was sort of referencing the coda of that song in the book, so... Well,
0: yeah, that's what we're going to... That, that's the opening part. That That's the part one of The Killing of Georgie. So, okay, I mean, that's... I can't think of really any other song that he's really taking from. The doo doo doos. I mean... Lou Reed was taking the doo-doo-doos from all the 1950s R&B he was listening to so uh, okay fair play those,
2: two, those two doo-doo-doos sound a, a little bit different from the walk on the wild side it's the same same ballpark I would say though
0: but now dig the second part of the killing of Georgie this, this sounds uh, the beat of, it's almost like it is another song in, in fact it is another out, song
2: and it fades back in with oh <laughs> George's dead.
0: remotely possible that Rod Stewart was not familiar with this Beatles song Is there any legal action on that one?
2: No. Uh, the uh, one of the uh, things I saw reference that was in John Lennon's. I think it was his Playboy interview, recorded right before he was killed. Um, he mentions Rod Stewart's song. They don't really. I think they they kind of messed up in the way they quoted them because they sort of referenced Maggie May as being similar to, to Don't Let Me Down. But, uh, so, but I'm uh. I'm almost positive that he was referencing this song because he mentioned Don't Let Me Down. And he said, and this is, this is a song that sounds exactly, not for note, like it. And he said, oh, Rod, that Rod Stewart song. And uh, he said, the lawyers never noticed that one, but uh, <laughs> he noticed it. And somebody asked me the question, Dave, in one of my interviews recently. They said, well, did the Beatles ever sue anybody? They've gotten sued so much. And I can't recall a case where they have. There are quite a few where they uh, could have or should have. Right. Um, uh, recently, Paul McCartney mentioned the TLC song Waterfalls, that he thought that that had ripped off his kind of obscure uh, song, Waterfalls, from 1980. Um, well,
0: how the, the two songs are both called Waterfall? Wow. Yeah, "Waterfalls."
2: Okay. The, the first two lines are quite similar, but after that, it's not too similar, but it's, an, it's worth noting. I do have that uh, case in the new edition of the book. And uh, this song by uh, the band Offspring from a few years ago called Why Don't You Get a Job? This is one of those cases where I just can't believe there hasn't been uh, legal action. It's really very, very close to the Beatles, but I haven't heard of any legal action in that case.
0: Now, one of the the weirdest, and in some ways, I don't know, almost poignant examples that you have. This this is probably the weirdest one of all, and it's still, I guess because the Beatles are so world-famous and and their, their music is such a part of the lexicon, like everything they do is subject to this kind of theft and scrutiny and osmosis that we've been talking about.
2: And because they were so successful. As we said, you know, these suits get attracted when there's money to be made off of it, as in the case of My Sweet Lord. And, uh,
0: and it, John know, Lennon's the, a big hit. Imagine. Now, but this is beyond... This, this is already to the point of, of really creepy sort of oddness, but, but also touching in, a, in an odd way. Tell this story that involves... John Lennon's 1971 song, Imagine, and a song that, was, that came six years earlier.
2: Well, one of the things I tried to do in the book is not only have the cases that would be um, obvious to uh, sort of a casual fan, maybe like My Sweet Lord and the Ghostbusters, I Want a New Drug Case. But also have some surprises in there for the person that's really into music, the music geeks of the world, as you and I are.
0: Thank you. And, Thank you. Uh, I talk about myself as a music geek. Thank you very much. Yes.
2: Yeah. Well, the guy introduced me that way, and right. I said, "Well, I guess I can't argue with it." But <laughs> uh it. Uh, this is certainly the story of John Lennon's father is kind of an, uh, and this record that he recorded is a very obscure chapter of uh, the Beatles story, but. Make a long story short. Uh, Alfred Freddie Lennon abandoned John and his family when John was about two years old. John did not—he was a merchant seaman. John did not see him for many, many years. Uh, in the meantime, he had, was raised by one of his aunts, and uh, his mother had been killed when John was a teenager. So, really, kind of a tragic uh, upbringing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: His father uh, reappeared on the scene in 1964 when John and the Beatles were filming Hard Day's Night. And this kind of dishevelled figure in need of a bath and uh missing a few teeth showed up on the set and saying he was john's father and I think um the story goes that John was kind of embarrassed at that time and sort of sent him on his way. A few months passed, and uh Freddie was peeling potatoes at a hotel outside of London, and he went to the one of the newspapers with kind of a sob story of why won't my rich and famous idol hmm. son talk to me. And around this time, he hooked up with the producer and recorded a song, which I guess we might call a novelty record or a cash-in, called That's My Life, My Love, and My Home. And sure enough, it's very strange and very eerie and very odd. If you listen to this song, it actually has echoes of John's great anthem, Imagine. Which,
0: was- which wasn't going to be written for six years. So it maybe the one thing that John got... Most of all from his father, well, aside from, I guess, love of a music <laughs> hall kind of music and, and the voice and the procession because well, you hear it in the we'll Albert song. Yeah.
2: Well, hear the voice. It's more recital than, uh, than singing. Freddie was no great shakes in the, right. was no great shakes in the father department and no great shakes in the vocal department either.
0: But listen to the chord structure of this. It's yes. really freaky. Remember, this is the son. well, I will say, stealing from the father. But this is just so, here's Alf Lennon from 1965, a song called That's My Life. Little ocean noise first.
3: My story, where I once left off. i sailed with the tides and lived on dreams. i watched the sunrise over every ocean. That's my life, that's my love, and my home. It started in Liverpool, where I was born. No father to advise me, but I carried on. First time I saw the sea, I just knew this had to be. It's my life, it's my love, and my home. I must tell you this: I was no heartbreaker, perhaps a dreammaker, but as the years rolled by. So, a lifetime of love go wrong. Pity was my partner all along. Yet, listen to me. Just let me tell you now I've grown strong. It could be the end of my story, but my story will never end. As people have always told me, I've been a true friend, but little to give, but a heart to lend. That's my life, that's my love, and my home. I make no excuses for my own abuses. The life makes us old, that way. I could blame the cruel scene was taken away from me. That's my life, that's my love, and my home.
0: That's my life,
3: that's my love, and my home. That was my life, my love, and my
1: home.
0: And you do hear... You know the echoes. I mean, they're certainly not the same song, but it's the same
1: key and same voice. Imagine
0: there's no heaven. See, so easy if you think you'll try. Well, I think we, I think we know this song pretty well, but. Um, Anyway, that's that's just that's pretty amazing stuff. That that has got to be the biggest uh, like revelation so far in, in paging through Timothy English's book. Um, you know, oh, sounds like Teen sounds- Spirit. There it is. So, what is the whole title there?
2: Sounds like Teen Spirit, Pollen melodies, ripped off riffs, and the secret history of rock and roll.
0: That secret history of rock and roll. Amazing. Stuff. I, I don't. We only have like a couple of minutes left now because um, I need to move on to other stuff. But I even want to play a couple of um, little quick Led Zeppelin things, because, man, oh man, they, these are kind of shocking, too. Can you want to you set um, one of these up real quick? Uh, whichever you have. I'm, uh, not, I'm not sure what the... the ter- well, I'll, I'll play... A Lot of Love? this. I think this is the Small Faces one. That is not Robert Plant. It's not early Led Zeppelin, even though it sort of sounds like them on their first album. Who is that?
2: That is Steve Marriott, uh, the lead singer of the band The Small Faces, extremely successful group in the UK. It included Kenny Jones on drums, Ian McLaughlin, and um, and uh, Ronnie Lane. All all very talented guys, underrated and kind of underappreciated in this country, with one or two exceptions. Uh, They had a couple of minor hits. Uh, the story behind this song is that it was written by the Chicago blues band Willie Dixon and popularized by Muddy Waters in the early 60s. The Small Faces version was, the original song was You Need Love. Their version was called You Need Love," and, uh, wasn't, I believe they did not properly credit it either. I believe they tried to take songwriting credit on themselves. Small Faces were a big band in England. Robert Plant was a huge fan of, um Steve Obviously,
1: Marriott. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you can hear
2: that. As a couple people pointed out to me, you can really hear in the vocals uh, where he picked that up. On Led Zeppelin is, uh, has their own chapter in the book, and they really have gotten in trouble. If you look at the credits on their first two or three or four, or really four albums, I guess maybe more, uh, there are very different credits on those albums now than uh, oh, when know. they originally came out. When Whole Lot of Love came out on the second album, it was credited to Plant and Page. If you look at it, any any of the recent CDs, it's credited to uh, Plant Page and Dixon. The right on. That being, uh, legal action was initiated on Willie Dixon's behalf in the 1980s, not too long before he died. Apparently, his, his, Willie Dixon was not aware of Whole Lotta Love, but his daughter brought it to his attention, and uh, legal action was taken, and is certainly a rightful, at least, co-author of Whole Lotta Love. I
1: Obviously, yeah.
2: And... uh in Jimmy Page's defense tried to give both sides uh, in the book. Yeah. Uh he said if you listen to, you know, the original Muddy Waters or I guess you could say even the small faces and then just the instrumentally the, the Zeppelin version are completely different pieces of music and they are very different. And he said, Well, uh, you know, Robert Plant was supposed to change the vocal uh, change the uh, lyrics on some of these and he didn't do it so oh.
1: you know, apparently
2: he found oh. it okay to copy the music but change the words around.
0: He should have done a little bit more. Well, no, no, it's okay. You credit everybody, and everybody gets to share, and that's all right. You know, that, to me, that's a happy ending. And, yeah, they should have.
2: They should have credited him, and there were a few other cases where they were, let's say, at, the, at least uh, lax in their efforts to properly credit their sources. Their the song "Days and Confused," um, which I touch on in the book, was uh, um, really uh, there was another uh, the original song "Days and Confused." was by a uh, New York songwriter, and uh, the Yardbirds had done it and uh, changed it around a little bit. But, again, that's really not properly credited either as a Zeppelin uh, track.
0: Now, the funniest one for me, is as we wrap this up here with Tim English, the author of Sounds Like Teen Spirit, this one, this one is so cool because I knew the, the fake, the copy, many, many years before I knew the original because, you know, like all kids, I watch Saturday Morning TV. And the cartoons and stuff like that, including I never watched H and R Puffin stuff. Never got into that. Can can deal with those weird people there. But I did watch um, another show called The Banana Splits, which was completely ridiculous. I guess it was influenced by the monkeys. they tried trying to do a monkeys thing for kids, and it was these you know guys in monkey suits running around doing crazy things. And their theme song was really really catchy. Well, what year was that? And what year was the song that that you know is going to blow our minds?
2: I'd say the um, the uh, you're talking about sixty eight, sixty nine, I think for the banana splits when it was on the air. Uh huh. Um, the Bob Marley song is on. Uh, uh, is from nineteen
0: eighty. So wait a minute. So it was Marley who's the thief? Maybe he was stoned. Well, that's funny. <laughs>
2: oh, oh, could it be? Uh, well, uh, I, I, again, uh, you know. I I, whether, uh, we don't want to ascribe motive, I don't think, but, uh, there's certainly the melody of, uh, the banana split theme. I have this in a section of the book called Would You Believe, which is also where the Freddie Lennon, uh, yeah. John Lennon Imagine cases. is. are very strange, uh, juxtapositions, but as, uh, somebody said to me, he says, we don't usually associate Bob Marley with grown men running around in animal costumes.
0: Well, we sure like, do now. <laughs> let's go after this because we've only got a few minutes left on the show let alone this segment so here is um, going to be well we'll hear the Bob Marley first and, and the funny thing is it's this children's song that he cribbed from and meanwhile he, he's written this really really serious song with using the same kind of catchy music as the chorus but before we play I want to thank so much to Timothy English for, for being a guest in the neighborhood and, and telling us and sharing with us all these music and all these 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 um, homages, I'll put a nice word along it, here tonight.
2: Great way to say it. And uh, I think anybody out, any of your listeners out there that have been into rock and roll, it's kind of a new way of looking at the whole history of music and getting some insight into the creative process and who influenced who down the years.
0: Well, go figure Bob Marley being influenced by a bunch of guys in banana suits. Doesn't get better than that, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Tim.
2: Thank you, Dave.
0: I cheated a little bit. This is the Liz Fair and Material Issue version of the Banana Split song. And sketches, interviews, and catches. Check our website listing and you'll find your faves. Airing week after week, every show was unique. Nah, those were the good old days. That's right. So many great moments on past episodes of Dave's Gone By. Now they're archived and available on CD. Special guests like Neil Innes, zany sketches with Rabbi Saul Solomon, and songs like Making Poopies. Classic episodes of Dave's Gone By, only $11 or less if you buy more than one. Add a dollar each for a personal autograph. Check davesgoneby.org for all the past shows or email By at com If you want to have Fun. Buy CDs, everyone. Yeah, those were the good old Daves. Never say never, unless you want the best Eastern European delicacies, all in one place, all at fabulous prices. Neva, the brand new international market at 1239 Broadway in Hewlett. Stephen's the owner, and he's got sausage, kefir, Israeli sunflower seeds, smoked fish, delicious juices... Food from the old country seven days a week. Nava 516 295 3892. 295 3892. At Nava, you'll be Russian back for more. Eat. Eat use, use, buy, buy, look at me, I'm the American consumer, and I want to spend my money on stores, restaurants, showrooms, travel agencies, mail order catalogs, sell me stuff. How do you reach me? Well, I listen to Dave's Gone By, so if you advertise there, you'll certainly have my attention, davesgoneby.org has all the details, or email By at aol.com for the rate card. I'm listening, sell me what you got. Shalom, damn it! This is Rabbi Sal Solomon of Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York. And I personally invite you to watch my new TV show, Shalom, Dammit, Rabbi Sal Solomon's Peace, Love, and Acid Reflux Hour, every Wednesday morning at 7.30 on Cablevision. If you've never seen a Jew before, this is your chance! Shalom, Dammit, it! 7.30 a.m. Wednesdays or any time on YouTube. You have my blessing. Welcome back to Dave's Gone by the Closing Minutes of this show. That was, of course, Rabbi Saul Solomon. Don't miss his TV program. So many chances to, t- to catch it now. Remember, Wednesdays at 7.30, Fridays at 7.30, both on Channel 115 on Cablevision of Woodbury, Long Island. New York listeners, if you're in Manhattan, you can now see it on Manhattan Neighborhood Network, Channel 67, Sunday afternoons at 1. 1- really cool time for it and also you can see it at MNN's website MNN.org Sunday afternoons at 1.30 but remember if you've got the computer just go to YouTube.com and see every episode of Shalom Dammit anytime you want to at YouTube well once again (laughs) thanks to the vagaries of having a one hour show I don't have time to do Inside Broadway all I'm going to say then about the homecoming is if you missed it you missed nothing it's awful (laughs) I never liked the play, and this is a particularly dull and not very tense and not very interesting one, even though it's got Raul Esparza, who's a very good actor that I like a lot, even though it has Eve Best, who can really do no wrong and was so superb doing Eugene O'Neill two seasons ago on Broadway. So, if you haven't seen The Homecoming, by all means, don't rush out to see it. Nobody has. It's been selling terribly, and they're finally closing the thing, so... Next week and the week after, hopefully I will get to talk to, about some really, really great shows on Broadway right now, including revivals of Gypsy and South Pacific, which are both exceptional in different ways. Anyway, gotta go out now, because it's midnight here, on WGBB Freeport, AM 1240, Dave Lefkowitz here, closing of shop, going out, but not before, I thank our wonderful sponsors, Nevada Market, 1239 Broadway in Hewlett, 516-295-3892, they're open seven days a week, and they've got groceries, and thing, pro, not produce, but things like, Yogurt and desserts and pastries and sausage and cooking things and noodles from all over the place. Mostly Russia, but also from places like um, other parts of Eastern Europe and Croatia and Israel. A lot of Israeli goods, too, at Neva Market, 1239 Broadway, in Hewlett, only a couple of blocks from Hewlett Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway, where Dave's Gone By listeners get 10% off any job, big or small. Hewlett Minuteman Press, 1315 Broadway, on the south shore of Long Island. Thanks also to our sponsors, MortgagesRock.com, the place to go for mortgages and also learning how to be a mortgage broker. And to Fancy Schmancy Balloons. 516-797-3229 for all your party decorating needs. And Performing Arts Insider Theater Magazine. One year of Performing Arts Insider. 12 big, big issues. Incredibly useful journal. Only $115 for Dave's Gone By listeners. So that's less than $10 an issue for a magazine that generally sells for $14 on the newsstands. Definitely check it out at PerformingArtsInsider.com Okay, just want to remind people that Marilyn May is going to be back at the Metropolitan Room April 8th through the 16th. Marilyn May, a delightful guest on this program, and one of Johnny Carson's favorite singers on his show. I saw her her gig at the Metropolitan a few couple of months ago. Really, really nice show. Go check her out. And the lovely and talented Maude Maggart. She's doing Speaking of Dreams at the Algonquin Oak Room. She's really moved up in the world. So she started on April 1st, and she's playing through May 10th at the Algonquin. So we want tickets to that. 212-419-9333, area code 212 419-9333. If you have comments about this week's show, um, and I, I, I just had a wonderful time, I just had so much fun tonight at, on the radio, this is why I do it. But if you want to tell me you liked it, you didn't like it, whatever you thought, Dave's gone by at AOL.com. D A V as in Victor. Dave is Gone By at AOL.com. And of course, check my website, davesgoneby.org, for all kinds of news and information on the show. And try and get on the mailing list so we can tell you what's coming up on future Dave's Gone Bys. I can tell you right now, upcoming guests include Neil Carlin, who is the author of a book called The Story of Yiddish. I will not be doing that interview. I think those of you who know this program can kind of guess who will. Should be a lot of fun. Neil Carlin, upcoming guest. On Dave's Gone By. And also, a fellow named Chris Shaw, who has co written the book with a bunch of other staffers at the New York Post, a book composed entirely of classic, ridiculous, amazing, and wonderful headlines from that newspaper. Don't miss it. These are in the upcoming weeks of Dave's Gone By. Remember that you can listen to 25 old shows anytime by going to davesgoneby.org. They're free. Also now, am1240wgbb.com is podcasting episodes of Dave's Gone By so we can hear a couple of previous weeks, recent previous weeks, and not have to be on here at 11 o'clock to hear them, which is kind of neat. And let's see, and, and listen for Filler Up, my music show, which is on, it's either Wednesdays or Saturdays on WGBB. Got to check the schedule for that. They move it around a little bit, but it's still here and uh, still playing the music that I like. want to thank my beloved and adorable wife, Joyce Weil. I want to send, again, best wishes to Jeff Goodman out in Vegas. To my good friend, Joe Salzone over at Sirius. And to Mom and Dad Lefkowitz. I want to say hi also to my Auntie Esther. Had a lovely um, meal with her today and uh, helped take our dogs to the vet, which was kind of nice and important kind of thing to do. Anyway, we've got to go, but we will be back next Sunday, and we will not repeat ourselves, or steal from ourselves, I promise, when we come back April 13th, 2008, with the 268th episode of Dave's Gone By. Until then, don't miss your days going by, this is Dave Lefkowitz, wishing you good night, well, I never, little sponsorship plug there, and gone by.
1: He's so fine.